Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring Libby Davies. Libby, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. I ask all my for my guests the same question to start off. So I'm going to ask you the exact same question. Where does your duty come from? Where did your duty to serve come from? Huh. Well, no one's ever asked me that. So it must be a good question that you're asking people. Um, I think it's just a part of my nature growing up. Both of my parents were quite political, especially my dad. We lived all over the world. Uh, my dad was in the British Army, but he always called himself a socialist, which I know sounds like a complete contradiction. Uh, but wherever we were in the world, uh, we were always very involved locally with local people, local culture, politics. And I think I grew up with a sense of being connected to a bigger world and what goes on around me. Um, it, would, it would be very easy in the British Army to be very insular and, you know, just have this tiny little world. And I never felt that from either of my parents. We had many adventures. And so I think it instilled in me a sense of uh, duty about um, caring about what goes on around me. Uh, for social justice, um, for compassion, and trying to understand the world around me and what I could do to affect change. I, I really think it comes from my background and my family. And in your course of your life, and uh, I want to bring you to the attention, uh, Outside In, your book, I read it. I, I thought I knew who Libby Davies was. And then I read it and I realized, holy crap, I do not know who she was. And I was so glad that I picked it up and I read it because I learned so much about you and your past and just your story. Um, when I first read it, and this was about two, three weeks ago, and I reread it this morning, the first thing that jumped out to me was you talk about your, your like you're moving around as a child because your dad was in the army and they would send you back to boarding school in London while they were living in another country. Was that hard as a child at that young of age, because you were just in your formative years of being a teenager that you were so far away from your family? Well, according to my mother, the first time I was sent back to school, and this was sort of mandatory because army school only went to age 11, you had to go back home to school. And my parents did send me and my sister to um, a state boarding school. They absolutely were not going to send us to a private boarding school or what in England would be called a public school. Um, and my mother tells a story that when she sent me off at the airport in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia that I never even turned back to wave goodbye. And so now I look back and think, wow, at 11 years old, we kind of navigated these huge journeys that took 24 hours on several different planes um, from Kuala Lumpur or sometimes from Singapore back to London through Salat, Sri Lanka, through Delhi, uh, all kinds of places. And I don't, remember anybody really helping us and even when we got to London we just used to get on the underground with our suitcases and somehow we got to the school and it was three years older but I was the one who was sort of like handing out the marching orders of like we do this now we've got to go here now we've got to do that and we did that you know for several years so I think again you know it fostered a great sense of independence in me and as a younger child I was always very independent I was kind of a wild spirit my mother let me just kind of roam around and I got up to all kinds of crazy things just roaming around in various places that we lived um, so I think you know that's you know I just kind of was someone who 
went out there and just kind of did it. Now I look back and think, oh my God, I think I should have been terrified. <laughs> but I, I think it's, you know, our younger selves, we don't think about it. We just do it, right? I think each of us can tell that story in many respects. Not everybody. We all have different experiences. But but I get the sense from the book that your father was somewhat like that as well, because every time that you would move to a new city or a new country, the first thing he would, he would do is get you in the car and start driving around to all these tourist locations, not relax because of the, uh, the tra uh, travel, but he wanted to be involved and get out and know the community that he was in. So does that kind of address your uh, upbringing as well of trying to be that rebel and that, hey, we're going to do things my way? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I remember going out with my father. I did lots of things with him. I remember going out to night markets um, where we lived in Malaysia uh, and meeting um, people who were very involved in politics. Um, that It was a time when um, independence for the British colony, Malaya, was just underway. So we were there for independence, what was called Maderka. And my dad was, you know, he had friends who were very involved in political action and so on. And I used to hang out with him. I don't recall the conversations. I just knew that they were, it was pretty big stuff and it was pretty interesting. And, you know, I would go on, on, um, into the jungle with him, with, with the soldiers under his charge and go up and down in riverboats and, you know, climbing and I mean, doing all kinds of stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, it was, it, it felt like an adventure, but I never felt afraid. I never felt alone. I never felt uh, that I wasn't safe. I always felt like, oh, this is exciting. This is what we do. <laughs> and I think that just kind of continued for me in terms of being fairly self-reliant and independent and having a sense of what I wanted to do and what I needed to do and knowing what where my place was in the world, that kind of thing. One of the biggest surprises that I found is, uh, and the only reason I found this shocking is because I live so close to the exact same area that you first moved to Canada. When you first moved to Canada, first you stopped in Montreal, then Edmonton, and then finally settled in the small Northern Alberta town, which I know quite well of Lac La Biche. <laughs> Lack the bish. How, how did that come about? Because uh, as a person coming from London, it must have been a rude awakening to go to a small rural town in northern Alberta. Chris, it was absolutely uh, an awakening. I remember driving up the road from Edmonton. My dad had bought this big Plymouth Fury in Edmonton as soon as we got off the train. And uh, I was 15 years old and we drove up that road and I thought it was never going to end. I thought, how could there possibly be a town or anything at the end of this road? You know, driving through the Muskeg and, and the, yeah, just, the, you know, the sort of the fairly barren landscape or it seemed to me. I'm a city person, I have to say, always have been. And when we got to Lac La Biche, which then was a community of 2,000 people or less, uh, many Métis people, uh, dirt roads, I went to the local high school and it was, it was pretty weird. And it, it really made me appreciate what it's like for newcomers to this country, recognizing that I speak English, you know, I had basically a common culture with Canada a common history with, you know, we appreciate a lot more what it's like for newcomers um, settling in this country and how difficult it can be. And so we, we stayed there um, not quite a year um, and then hightailed it to Vancouver. My dad, though, had gotten a job. The reason we were in Lac La Biche is that my dad had a job at something called Alberta New Start, which was... Um, sort of an educational training program for Métis people. Um, it was a disaster. Eventually, the Métis people took it over. They had a sit-in, and I remember us all cheering in our family when that happened because my dad thought it was a disastrous model. And then he went to Fort McMurray and left us in Lac La Biche. We lived in a, uh, what do you call it, a trailer house, like an ATCO house. Um, and he went to Fort McMurray and did 
more work up there before we came to Vancouver. So yeah, it was, I, you know what? I look back now, I've never been back to Latvish, but I might one day. And I think it was like a really good um, introduction to Canada for me as a young person. And I, I think I learned a lot and I've always had kind of a strong affinity for Northern Alberta and, and Albertans because of that, that experience that I have um, in, you know, my first time as a Canadian. So did you and your, like the, your mother and your sister move to Vancouver before your father did, or did your, did your whole family move at once? We all moved to Vancouver at the same time. Uh, we drove in this, the, in the infamous Plymouth Fury, this huge car from Northern Alberta uh, to Vancouver. We arrived in Canada, in Vancouver on what was then called Dominion Day, now called Canada Day. And my father said, well, of course, we were all really tired from this long journey. And my father said, well, we have to drive around Stanley Park because this is a very important place in Vancouver. So we, we didn't even go anywhere else. We drove immediately around Stanley Park. And of course it was bumper to bumper because it was Canada Day and everybody was driving around Stanley Park. And then eventually we made it over to the house that they had rented, um, uh, you know, out of the downtown area. But yeah, my first view of Vancouver was actually Stanley Park. <laughs> would have been beautiful <laughs> yep um your political story starts in uh, vancouver and relatively shortly after you arrive in vancouver it starts a general provincial election happens in 1972 uh the reigning social credits are in power for a long time in this province but you decide to back a relatively unknown, but a star candidate for the NDP, the provincial NDP in the uh, in the provincial election. Was it an easy decision for you once you got to Vancouver to uh, throw your support behind the NDP, or was there some soul searching before you ultimately landed with the NDP? Oh, I, I ended up working on Emery Barnes's campaign because basically my dad said, this is the guy who's the good guy. <laughs> my dad was already out canvassing for the NDP in the neighborhood where we lived. And I was working on a youth project in the downtown east side, although it was still called Skid Road then. And we were running a, a little food store and um, I don't remember how I met Emery, but Emery Barnes was like six foot six. Um, had, you know, a black American, had been a football player with the BC Lions, turned social worker, a wonderful man. And I mean, as soon as I met him, I just, you know, fell in love with the guy. He was amazing. And so we started canvassing for him in the old hotels and rooming houses, which nobody had ever done, me and another student. Um, and... Uh, you know, so it, it really wasn't a decision. It was just sort of a natural outcome of, of again, my family and my father saying, well, it was a provincial election. We have to get involved. This is what we do. You know, we have to be assertive here. We have to make sure that we, you know, they'd always voted for the Labour Party in Britain. And so, no, this is now the NDP. This is what we do. So I just sort of naturally fell into it. And I, to tell you the truth, Chris, I didn't question it at all. It was like, oh, okay, and this is what we do. <laughs> was your father active in British politics while he was there? I know he was a military man, but was he actually active? Did he help out on campaigns? Or was this his first campaign that he was helping out on as well? If you remember. I don't remember him being active. Yeah, I don't remember him being active in uh, labor politics in England because we mostly were not in England. But I do remember that he <clears throat> uh, would always um, listen to debates on the radio on the BBC, and um, and you know we would it would be discussed at the dinner table what was going on in an election. I remember Harold Wilson when he was the prime minister and hearing my mother and father talking about Harold Wilson and and my father would always make a big point of saying how the British people 
dumped Winston Churchill after the war. He'd done a good job, but it was time for Labour to take over. And, you know, so I, I kind of grew up with that. Um, but I don't I don't recall that he actually campaigned. He, he might have gone to a few meetings when if we happened to be in the UK at the time, if there was an election, but nothing more than that. Was your mother politically active? <clears throat> My mother wasn't as politically active in sort of party politics, but in her own way, she's very political. Um, well, I say she just died a couple of weeks ago, so I'm, I'm still thinking of her, so she's still here. She was 100 years old when she died. Um, and my mother became a social worker when we got to Canada and was involved in the delivery of social services um, in the downtown Eastside area. Um, she later became a raging granny. So she would show up at all the demonstrations in Vancouver and then she'd say to me, Libby, where were you? I didn't see you there. Where were you? And I say, well, mom, you know, I'm, I'm doing stuff in my writing or I'm in Ottawa. Well, well, you better get out to these demonstrations. So my mother was very political too, particularly in her later life. Um, you actually don't start even thinking about getting on the ballot until a few years after that provincial election. And it was kind of a spur of the moment, as you described in Outside In, your book, where Bruce, your partner at the time, turns to you and points to you and says, hey, you should be on the ballot. <laughs> That's kind of a yeah. random thing to say to somebody, but also you go, sure. <laughs> I, I do sound like I'm very compliant, don't I, in all of this? Like everything, and it and it, it it sort of feels like that in a way. Well, first of all, it was Harry Rankin who said that he was already oh, on sorry. city council, and he was sort of the only kind of left-leaning city councillor at the time, and he was the one who pointed to me and said, "She, she should run." And I kind of looked around, like, "Who's he?" To oh my God, he's talking about me. So um, yeah, I mean, I feel like everything in my political life has, I mean, I can't say it's by accident, but I, I can tell you that I don't believe I ever had a conscious decision. You know how some people say, I knew when I was 10 years old that I wanted to be prime minister or I wanted to be a member of parliament or, you know, I've heard Peter Milliken say, I wanted to be the speaker of the house. That was never me. I never even contemplated any of this stuff. It sort of, just happened along the way. It seemed like a natural progression of a time, a place, an opportunity where other people kind of said, Libby, go do that. You, you should do that. You'd be good at it. And I'd go, oh, okay. And be sort of terrified at the same time because, you know, I mean, I figure that politics is really the only job where you get no training Right. I mean, you just sort of jump in, Who you know, you barely get any training, maybe for the from the party that you're running with for, a, you know, a few sessions of this or that. Um, so it really is kind of a sink or swim. And uh, but I must have had that inclination. I must have something in me must have known that I wanted to do this and I felt compelled to do this. And I think for me, it's this idea that I always wanted to make a difference because even before I was involved in politics, like my first year at university, my only year at university, you know, listening to the fact that Greenpeace was going to Amchitka to protest nuclear testing. I phoned up right away and volunteered to go. I mean, I was like 17 years old, right? So obviously this was something in me that felt like driven that I had to get out there and do things and make a difference. So I think that's just sort of, what my nature and my character has been, and it's kind of gone from one thing to another. But I never planned a life in politics, I can tell you. And you get to start making those decisions. Uh, you were elected <clears throat> to Vancouver City Council, and you are thrust upon the uh, one of the largest cities in Canada. It's the largest city in British Columbia, but you're thrust upon it, and you have to start making decisions as a sort of quote unquote green candidate who hasn't had the political experience in the, her in their past to even comprehend this, was it tough? Was it tough to make decisions that are, because municipal politics is where people are affected the most and you are making the decision day to day to affect people's Absolutely. lives. How hard was that for you? 
I don't remember it being hard, but you have to remember that for a number of years, I'd been uh, an organizer in the downtown east side, literally fighting city hall. So I was very immersed in a lot of the critical issues around fighting for decent housing and trying to stop um, the conditions in the in the terrible hotels and rooming houses, um, fighting for community spaces and things like this. So being elected city council again, and when I, I at the time, I don't really remember any fear or trepidation about it. Now looking back, I think, geez, like how did I do that? I was quite young. I mean, the first time I ran, I think I was 23. Um, uh, but it, it was, I, uh, the sense I have is that I was always propelled by this motivation to just get out there and to be part of it and to do something. So once I got on city council, I think I learned very quickly. There's only 10 members of Vancouver City Council. It's a very small council. It's still the same size today, which is ridiculous. It's an at-large system. Um, and so you're, you know, theoretically covering the whole city. So I picked it up pretty quickly. I liked it. Um, I think I got a reputation for being sort of a tough debater and fighter. Um, uh, but I, I, but I was I, my politics were never personal. I never went after people on you know my adversaries. It was always about the issues for me, and that's been something true my whole life. You know, I have many friends and allies that I met in the Conservative Party in Ottawa. Um, you know who and even municipally, where I, on occasion, I would work with them on different issues. So in that way, I never felt like I was hyper-partisan. And I think that also came from the municipal arena. I think anyone who's gone into provincial or federal politics from the municipal arena, they tend to be less partisan about how they approach their political work. And I think that's the municipal experience. And I always saw that as a positive thing. In your book, Outside In, you talk about the then mayor of Vancouver, future premier of British Columbia, Gordon Campbell, uh, how his uh, leadership style was a little bit heavy handed when it came to delegations, when it came to people talking uh, to uh, council. You just said that you were able to work across party lines. Was it easy to work with Gordon? Um, not at first. Um, when he first got elected, he had a majority, and it was during an era of restraint and austerity, 1982, sorry, 1986, just um, uh, sort of during Expo, and he brought in very severe austerity programs in at the civic level, and it was only me and my partner, Bruce Erickson, who was also a city councillor, that was sort of the opposition to that. So it was very tough. We fought very, very hard um, against civic cuts with the community. Gordon Campbell started moving much more to the center. Um, he always, I guess he saw himself as a federal liberal. Um, and so, for example, he and I were both on what's called Metro Vancouver. We were two of the five reps from Vancouver on the Metro Vancouver Council. And I worked quite closely with him on a number of issues. Um, so, um, yeah, we had, you know, we had political differences and there were things that I sharply disagreed and fought against him, particularly in the early years. But there were also, I think later on, there were issues where we were basically uh, working on the same side and working, you know, for Vancouver interests. Um, so it's, it's interesting because, you know, again, uh, and this is what I've learned in politics, um, that the relationships and the alliances that you build are very important. They can be very personal. And they're, they're really, to me, it's not, you know, what you stand for is really important. And I know what I stand for. I know what I believe in. But how you do your politics is really important. And I learned that a lot in Ottawa. Um, there were some MPs who I found really quite despicable. And I have to say one of them that was really hard was, was actually Jason Kenney. My experience with him was always very, very negative. Um, I found him so 
ideological and personal. And, you know, and he went after me a few times. Um, but there were other, other members of his party, uh, surprisingly, someone like John Baird, you know, he was the House leader for the Conservatives when I was the House leader for the NDP. We got on really well. And people are like stunned, like, how could you get on with that guy? You know, he's a pit bull. Well, you know, we did. You know, we kind of worked, we worked out how we were going to work. And, and so I do find those things very interesting because politics is always perceived as so adversarial. And certainly it can be, you know, you look at question period or you certainly look at what's going on in Alberta and how, how challenging the debate is there now, especially during um, this pandemic and COVID. Um, but I think there are also opportunities and moments where we can literally reach across the aisle um, you know, it depends on who's on the other side too, right? You know, it doesn't, it, it, but, but I've experienced that. I've, I've been able to experience political work and relationships that was bipartisan, that was nonpartisan in a way. And I've always appreciated that. And I've always enjoyed that. Um, going back to your time in Vancouver for a quick second. In 1993, you decide to run for mayor. It is uh, an unsuccessful bid for the mayor oralship of Vancouver. Um, in your book, there's a quote that you say, and I want to get your opinion on why you said it. You said in your book, while having its challenges, running was important for your political development. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it really jumped me up into another arena in terms of leadership. I'd been a city councillor for quite a few years. Um, I had a very good standing in terms of my votes and all of that kind of stuff. And running for mayor um, was a very different ball game, right? You're suddenly the leader of your slate. You're the spokesperson for your party or group. Um, and so I think it, it immediately forced me into a different kind of experience and arena. And um, yeah, I lost that race and Philip Owen ran, uh, won and became a very good mayor actually. Um, but I, I really learned from it. I learned about what kind of leadership style I had, what I felt comfortable with. And you have to remember during these years, most of the, po the po politicians around me were men. Most of my mentors were men, older men. Um, and so my experience as a woman in politics um, and my reflection on what that was about really didn't come till quite a few later years when I was in Ottawa. Um, so running for mayor and losing you know, I think women lose a lot better, by the way, than men do, generally speaking. You kind of just like, oh, well, okay, did that, did the best I could. Let's get on with it. Um, and I, I mean, I've seen men who were crushed. Their ego was crushed when they lost, you know, running for some big position. Um, Trump but comes, I'm glad I ran because I learned a lot. Yeah, yeah <laughs> no kidding. The ultimate, my God. Um, uh, <laughs> Um, isn't that weird how already he seems like just, you know, you put him out of your mind, like it's gone, at least yeah. for me, it's like so weird. He occupied so much space and, and now he's like, okay, he's out of that space. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, the whole notion of leadership and women in politics and, and, and that, that process began for me when I, when I ran for mayor. Uh, it, pre after, it prepared me for other things, I think. After a four-year absence from the political arena, you decide to get back into it after a, a meeting with a, a future colleague of yours, Fen Robinson. Um, you win the nomination, a close nomination, which mm -hmm. is outlined in the book. I don't want to spoil it for everyone, but I highly recommend it reading it because you give great details about that. But I want to talk about your first day on the Hill because you literally opened the book with your first day on the Hill mm -hmm. of you walking up to the hill through a sea of, of anti-abortion uh, protesters or, uh, and you have to deal with this as your very first few moments as a newly elected MP. Was that a culture shock for you to see that right in Ottawa? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, and there was a, a local journalist from Vancouver who was following me, Julius Fisher, and he was actually interviewing me. And um, this big demonstration, because it was the opening day of parliament, of the new parliament was going on. And I was like, holy crap, there's this big thing going on and I got to get through it because I'm late. And so I remember sort of like, you know, using my pointy elbows to push my way through the rally, trying not to look at the signs because I'm very strongly pro-choice, uh, not looking at the signs and just thinking, I got to get in there. I got to get in there. They're, they're going to be, um, you know, calling for the vote or electing the speaker. I didn't quite know what the heck was going to go on, but I knew I was on the verge of being quite late. So um, it was a very riveting experience that first day on the hill uh, because I actually did feel a bit lost. And in, in that um, opening in the book, I, I try to express that. I honestly, Chris, I remember thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing here? What the heck am I doing? I've left my son in Vancouver. My partner had just died like two months earlier, um, three months maybe, um, I was still feeling a great sense of loss. Here I was as a new MP. I really didn't know anybody in the NDP caucus excepting for Sven Robinson. I didn't know the leader, Alexa McDonald, McDonough. And it was a moment where I thought, oh my God, what am I doing here? And then, I don't know, that sense of challenge that has always been there with me, I I, I suppose came forward and, and I began to think I'm here to do a job. I'm here to fight for East Vancouver, a community that's low income, very marginalized, that needs a strong voice. So that, that really came through to me and I just picked up and got in there and figured I better learn how this stuff works in Ottawa. What I find fascinating about the book is literally your first probably about I would say a year into, into being an elected MP, you, as you said, you don't know your caucus colleagues that well. So you go against your leader in uh, nominating Sven Robinson for house leader. This does not go over well. You uh, give uh, the press in Vancouver is not like, does not like you because they write a headline like gives junkies, uh, give junkies drugs says MP referring to you. And you talk openly in your book about how your very first political panel is Peter McKay, future leader of the Progressive <laughs> Conservatives. So you literally have the trifecta of the very first, probably worst opening year of an MP. How did you get through it? Because I'm looking, I'm reading this, I'm going, holy moly, she went through a lot in that first year. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> um, because I felt charged with a mission of what I was there for. People in the riding I represented were dying by every day of drug overdoses. It was, um, it was a, a crisis. And I, all I could think was, what do I need to do? How do I get this out there? How do I convince the Minister of Health that they can't put people in jail because they use drugs. This is a health issue. How do I how do I get that over to him? Um, and and so I I was very driven, but also very supported by people that I was working with in the community. And this has been a very important factor in my political life, Chris, is is the sense of having allies on the ground and feeling like I'm part of something bigger, a movement, right? It's not me, it's not about me. It's about this movement that I'm part of for transformative change. And on this issue, it was, it was the issue of drug policy reform, which nobody wanted to talk about in Ottawa, not even within the NDP. Um, you know, and I was already calling for a safe injection site and saying that people should be put on medicalized heroin Hence the headline, you know, MP wants to give, give uh, junkies free drugs. Um, and to me, it was like a health imperative. It was literally about life and death. And I think those big things, they, they you know, either you um, run away from them and think, okay, I can't do that. Or you, or you embrace it and say, no, this is what I'm here for. And it, so it did give me that sense of, 
understanding about what I needed to do. And that really carried me forward through all the ups and downs. I, I always had that strong sense of conviction of what I was fighting for and why and who I was fighting for. So, you know, <clears throat> some people get <clears throat> very caught up in the Ottawa scene. I saw that with many MPs, including our own MPs, you know, the all the receptions and the this and the that. I never did. I never did. I, it was for me, it was always what's happening in East Vancouver, getting back to the riding every week, fighting with, you know, on issues, working with people. And that's what kept me moving. Um, and I, uh, I think I did okay by that. I think it was a good way for me to work. Um, you you get to serve under Alexa uh, Mc, McDonough. I apologize if I McDonough, yeah, McDonough. Um, and then in uh, early two thousand two, you decide to throw your support behind a former uh, FCM uh, Federation of Canadian Municipalities uh, president and a future leader and future leader of the official opposition, Jack Layton, as the official next party leader you you talk about in the book and yet again i want to get from your words what did jack mean to you i already knew jack because he and i had worked together as city councillors him in toronto and me in vancouver and i realized that we had a very strong affinity on many different issues he was working on hiv aids so was i we both were very involved in the development of Canadian cities as nuclear weapons free zones. This is during the 80s and the height of the Cold War. Um, so when Jack made a decision to run for leader, um, I, I felt like that's what the NDP needed. He was seen as an outsider, you know. I mean, he'd always been a new Democrat, but he was very much seen as an outsider from the Ottawa scene. And I felt that we needed that. And so Sven Robinson and I were the only two members of the federal caucus to support Jack. Um, and he ran a brilliant campaign with his partner, Olivia Chow, who later became a member of parliament as well. And I, I liked Jack's way of doing politics. We had a lot in common because of our municipal background. Um, and so it was easy for me to support him. And I was really just so happy when he became the leader. And I think that was a big surprise to a lot of people because he won very, very um, handily. It wasn't close, he won very handily. Uh, and then I was very shocked when he asked me to be the house leader. And I was like, no way, I can't be the house leader. I don't know anything about all the procedures and rules of the house, you know, go look. No, no, I want you. And I think it's because he trusted me and he knew that I was straight up, you know, that I wouldn't play games and that and that this whole issue of working with people, right, working in an honest way with people, even your adversaries. I, I think Jack liked that in me. I liked that in him because he was very much that way in Ottawa. He could be partisan, but he was also a guy who wanted to get things done. If you remember, his famous saying was, don't let them tell you it can't be done. He was a guy who also always wanted to reach across the aisle and figure out, okay, what can we actually accomplish here? And I think Canadians came to love him because of that kind of um, approach that he had to politics. You know, he was the guy you wanted, you could sit down and have a beer with, you know, he was very approachable. So it was, it was a great joy working with Jack in those years that he was a leader. So the follow-up question has to be then, what was your working relationship with Mr. Blakey be like? Because first you nominate Sven for house leader over top of Blakey, then you endorse Layton over top of Blakey in that leadership race. Did you have a good working relationship with Mr. Blakey? <laughs> you know, we are, that's, that's a good one, Chris. That's a really good one, very perceptive. Uh, we actually are really, really good friends. And I remember Bill Blakey staring down at me in fury when I nominated Sven to be house leader. Um, but when when Jack made me house leader after he became the, the leader of the party, he named 
Bill parliamentary leader, which was a very smart move. Um, because of course, Jack was not yet elected as an MP. And so Bill and I worked very closely together. And I remember him sitting down with me and, and telling and saying to me, Libby, I will help you as much as I can. So he's the kind of guy that has no grudges or anything. Um, he was really, I learned so much from Bill. He's a fantastic parliamentarian. And by the way, you might know, just became an officer of the Order of Canada. I'm so happy it was just announced a few days ago that he's an officer of the Order of Canada, a great parliamentarian, eventually became the deputy speaker of the House, had enormous respect from all sides of the House. Um, so I learned a lot from Bill. And, um, but yeah, he got mad at me a couple of times. Um, but I think he knew it wasn't personal. You see, I'm, it, I think it's all how you do it. You know, if, if it looks like you've got a nasty agenda where you're trying to, do people in or you know get rid of them or like then people are going to react but if, if it's about the things you believe in and issues and it's not personalized i think people respond differently so bill and i have always worked very well together and still to this day i you know i still phone him every once in a while and we chat and uh and he's he's a he's a, a great canadian he certainly is um, before we move into uh, the 2015 election, there was one area I want to talk about because it was it's so prominent in your book, and I want to make sure we get into it before time runs out, is um, your quote-unquote official coming out in Hansard. You are, if not the only person that I know that has officially come out of the closet in a government document in Hansard that will be forever read by school children for years to come, for documentarians to, for years to come. I was shocked to learn that that was a spur of the moment thing for you. It was not planned. That's right. <laughs> like everything else in my life, it wasn't planned. Um, it was actually a debate on Sven Robinson's private member's bill on same-sex marriage. And he asked me if I wanted to speak in support of it. And I said, of course. And in speaking to the bill, other MPs were speaking about their relationship with their partners. And I remember in particular, the block MP who spoke before me, who said, you know, he was married to his A. He wanted to know that, you know, they would be able to enjoy their marriage with their, their spouse with no stigma and, you know, discrimination. And so it was the kind of debate where you, you speak about your personal life. And the point that I wanted to make, Chris, was that I felt very strongly that it's not the place of the state to dictate well, first of all, who you love, but who you can marry or not, or live common law or not. And so I, I was simply making the point that I had been in a common law relationship for 24 years with Bruce Erickson, my partner. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it was my choice if I got married or not to that person. And it would be, you know, anybody's choice if they got married, whether it was same sex or not. And I just happened to say, I, I don't know, it just came out, you know, and now I'm in a relationship with a woman. And I didn't even think about it, really. It was only afterwards um, that I, I thought, oh, okay, I think I just said something there that is not in the public realm. And I phoned my partner, Kim, and said, uh, by the way, I just did this. And she was like, okay. <laughs> and then, then the media did pick it up and it became a story, which I was surprised at. Um, and I didn't feel comfortable about the story, actually. I, then I was actually terrified because I did one interview um, and I, I could not remember a word that I said in the interview. And I was terrified the whole night about what I might've said or not said. And the headline, the next day, I mean, the story went across the country, but the headline in the Vancouver Sun was really strange. It said, um, uh, Day MP Davies ad admits same-sex relationship as though somehow I'd confessed or someone had dragged it out of me. And so I took offense to the headline and asked that they apologize for the headline, which they did. 
and I asked them to write an editorial about the important use of language and how you know language can create stigma or stereotypes or, or harm. And so they did write an editorial. It was kind of a mealy-mouthed editorial, but they did do it. So yeah, it was a very interesting experience coming out. And uh, yeah, it just kind of happened. <laughs> How do I how do I word this question? I want to ask you this because, uh, as someone who was coming out during the uh, uh, the C thirty eight debate, the vote, it was very prideful of myself to watch that vote live, to actually be able to properly express love between myself and a, a partner, and be able to dream that I might be able to get married one day. As someone who was on that floor who actually got to vote in that vote. How monumentous was that vote for you? It was a very important vote and it felt very personal. And I wanna tell you that there were only a handful of out members in the house. I was the only woman. Um, there was Bill 6A in the NDP and I'm trying to think, oh, I know, um, Real Menard from the block. It, so it's basically four of us. And we wrote, Scott, yeah, although I think, I don't think Scott Bryson signed the letter. I can't remember. Anyway, we wrote a letter because the debate got really nasty. Um, you know, the attacks on same-sex relationships, on homosexuality, on, you know, the whole sort of, you know, against God, against the church and all of this, it all came out in that debate. And so we wrote a joint letter to each party leader to, to share with people that this was very hurtful, right? That this was a political debate too, yes, but it was also very personal to people. For us as MPs who were in same-sex relationships, but also to the whole LGBTQ community, right? We were talking about people's lives, about their relationships. And so we wanted to express that. And I remember delivering that letter to each leader in the house. Um, Jack was the only one who replied. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a pretty intense time. And I remember when the vote happened and we went outside and it was a very hot day. It was in the summer, June, maybe July. And people were waiting outside and were cheering. And it felt pretty momentous. And I felt, I felt really um, uh, that I was very fortunate to be a part of that historic time and to be able to be in that house to vote on that motion to legalize same-sex marriage as mandated by the Supreme Court of Government of, of Canada. Of course, the, the Liberal government at the time had been dragging its feet and it was only because of the Supreme Court of Canada and all of the work that had been done in the community of the court challenges that Parliament was then forced and compelled to bring forward legislation. Let's not forget that. Yeah, which is a kind of ironic that at the end of the day, Beverly McLaughlin, the Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice, was the one who actually signed the bill into law as well. Full circle there. Yep. <laughs> um, we'll jump forward to 2015. Yep. 2015 uh, is your last election that you run in, but uh, you don't know it at the time. I'm assuming you, you don't make a plan that you're going to get out of politics before an election is called. But in 2015, an election is called. No, I, I didn't. Oh, I didn't. 2011. 2011. 2011 sorry. 2011. Yeah. 2011. Yeah. 2011. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah. 2011. Uh, at the beginning of that election, polls had the Liberals and the Conservatives neck and neck, but Jack Layton started a groundswell of support. People wanted Jack. People liked Jack. After two or three elections of opposition, they started giving their support to Jack. That election night, how happy were you in BC watching those numbers come in from Quebec from Ontario. Chris, it was a very bittersweet moment for a couple of reasons. One, it was historic. 
and we had watched the votes unfold in Quebec and kind of move across Ontario and then, you know, through the prairies and on into BC. And we did well in BC. So the fact that the NDP for the first time in history was the official opposition was like, wow, this is incredible. But it was also a recognition that Stephen Harper had, had, you know, that he was there in a majority, right? And that we had to take him on. So that was very difficult. And of course, the other element was that Jack was sick. He had cancer. Um, he was, he had done the campaign unbelievably. He was such a courageous man. Um, we didn't know how long he would um, live. We hoped that he would recover. That's what he believed. Um, so it was, it was a, wow, it was a night to remember for so many reasons um, in terms of, you know, the history for us as a party, for what was going on in Canada at the time, and also personally in terms of Jack's story and what was to, what was to come not that long after, you know, uh, with his death which was very, very hard on the caucus, especially the new members, all of the young members from Quebec who had hardly known Jack. Some of them had not even met him. Um, and yet here they were as new MPs. So it was a very tough time and it really brought us all together. It was a very solid group of like 102 of us, I think, very solid. And the older MPs, the so-called veterans like me, I think really helped the younger MPs, kind of kept people together. And of course we were then into another leadership race after Jack died. Um, so it was a pretty big time for the party. And I, I feel like we rose to the occasion and we did everything we could to hold, to be the loyal opposition, you know, in our parliamentary system. We, 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 we gave it everything we got, we, we could. Um, you got the news that Jack had passed inadvertently uh you first heard of it from a news uh, from a reporter asking the question and then you talk in the book how you called um uh, the chief of staff at the time to confirm reports um that moment for you was it hard was it was it was it a blow to politics done differently was it a blow to what the ndp had stood for in that 2011 election that they have come so far away and the person who was the flag bearer for so long had now passed on. It was a really hard day. I was actually in St. John's, Newfoundland at a Canadian Medical Association uh, conference because I was the health critic for the NDP and it was early in the morning and we were all just going into the convention and a reporter came up to me and said, Libby, we've heard reports that Jack has died. And I had seen him two days before. Um, I was one of the last people to see him on Saturday, the Saturday, this was the Monday. And, um, and I, in fact, I'd left Toronto to go to St. John's. And I immediately ducked into the washroom because that was the closest place I could get away from everybody. And I remember sitting on the toilet, <laughs> excuse me, everybody, <laughs> um, phoning Anne McGrath, and she did indeed confirm that he had died just uh, an hour or two earlier in Toronto. And I went back out, and of course, there was a huge scrum, so I had to kind of face that. And it was uh, it was hard, uh, because I felt quite emotional personally about losing a very good comrade and friend. And I knew what it meant for Canada. You know, people loved Jack, and it did feel like a very heavy, heavy moment. And I had to say something. I had to say something coherent. I had to say something meaningful. I had to say something that wasn't too emotional. You know, you can't break down. You need to, you need to be able to express what people are feeling and what's important about that moment. And so I, I did get through for that. But I think the hardest thing that day was later on, I think it was the evening, I was asked to read the letter that he wrote to Canadians on CBC. I think maybe it was As It Happens. I can't remember what program it was, but they asked me to read the letter and that was really hard. I could barely get through it, um, that letter that he wrote to Canadians. Um, and, you know, and then we went back to Ottawa a couple of days later, but uh, 
um, yeah, it was a very tough time. It's, you know, grief is a difficult thing. We, for, we know, but when it's very public, um, it, it, it makes it very difficult. And what I remember most of all is Olivia, Jack's partner. She was just like a tower of strength. She was the one supporting us. Can you believe that? She was the one who was giving support to us in the caucus when she had lost, you know, the, you know, the, the love of her life. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we really stuck together and it really, I think, made everybody very, very close. Um, those four years as official opposition, like you said, you had a leadership race, Thomas Mulcair won. At what point in time in those four years do you decide, decide it's time? It's time to hang up my hat, that ne- let the next generation of NDP take over my riding. It wasn't a sudden decision. It was something that was percolating in my brain, thinking, you know, I will have been here 18 years. Um, have I done what I think I needed to do? Is it time for somebody else? Do I have other things that I want to do? And I, I really felt that, um, yeah, it was a time when I wanted to leave and make my own decision about that. So it, it kind of, you know, was just going around my brain here and there. And I would keep coming back to it. Do I want to run another election? Do I want to go through that? Am I up for it? Do I have the energy for it? And I, I finally came to the conclusion that I was ready to leave. And it, I'm, it's not an easy decision, but I'm glad I made it. Um, and it wasn't made for me. Um, but it was, you know, it's hard to sit out an election too and watch everything that's going on from the sidelines. Although I was involved campaigning. I did a lot of campaigning in BC for the party. Um, and uh, um, yeah, and then, you know, there was the disappointment with the result because there'd been very high expectations for the NDP. And in fact, Thomas Mulcair had been, you know, saying to people, we could form government. You know, there was that, at some points, there was that uh, feeling that we could actually do it. Um, and then it slipped away. You know, it was not a great campaign. And I talk about that in the book, at least what I thought about it. And, um, and, and, and the result that we got for the NDP, of course, was very disappointing. We, we lost many members, particularly in Quebec. And that was, that was very hard to deal with. Um, so, but that's politics too, you know, you kind of roll with it. You, you got to live with what happens and you got to figure out how to come back if you want to come back and how to do it. And, you, and most important, you have to learn. You have to learn from, you learn probably more from the defeats than you do from the successes, I think. Yeah. And it, it's a measure of who you are, how you handle that in politics, you know? There's two questions I've left before we wrap up here. One, how are you enjoying your political retirement now? <laughs> retirement. I feel like I'm as busy as I ever was, excepting I don't fly back and forth to Ottawa every week. Um, I'm having a grand time. I'm still writing. Um, I, you know, I participate on a couple of boards that keep me quite busy as a volunteer. Um, I still do a lot of political engagement. Um, I can't believe the number of people who, particularly young people who phone and want advice about, about running or getting into politics or history or, you know, doing interviews. I write articles here and there. So, uh, wow, time is just flying by and, um, I, I like it, you know, I'm still very busy, which I like, but I have this incredible luxury now that I don't feel compelled to say yes to everything. When I was elected, I think this is particularly true for women because we're always trying to prove ourselves or, and I think for any underrepresented group, whether it's a, you know, a racialized candidate or, or from the LGBT community or an indigenous um, candidate or elected person, I, you're always trying to show that you can do it, you know? And so there's, there's always this feeling like you got to just take on more, you got to do more, you got to be there more to prove it, to prove it. And, and I think this is, you know, something I've been reflecting on. And of course now I don't have to do that. <laughs> I can say, thanks, 
but no thanks. And so that feels pretty nice. Um, but I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm, I'm enjoying my so-called retirement and I'm keeping myself active and healthy and busy and uh, hope to do uh, a lot more writing. Well, Libby, I want to thank you so much. And I want to thank you for saying yes to me for doing the interview. So greatly appreciate it. Um, Libby, uh, people who are still listening or uh, want to get a copy of uh, Outside In, a political memoir by Libby Davies, please reach out uh, Libby Davies's website. Uh, will be linked to the show notes in the bottom of the page. And also you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, you can get it there as well. So go out, get it. It's an amazing read from a person who has spent formative years within Ottawa and made crafting a better Canada for today. So thank you for doing this, Libby, once again. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for such great questions. I enjoyed sharing a little bit of good of all the political experiences. That there are. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you.